4: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There's a lot in the news. We've got, according to numerous military and former intelligence officials, a massive Russian, or apparently a fairly small Russian disinformation campaign, not even certain it came out of Russia. I mean, this might just be something that, you know, some cranky oligarch or some, you know, crazy guy in Rudy Giuliani's circles have come up with, with uh, some forged Hunter Biden emails. You know, I don't think this is going to work. I think that, number one, most Americans have already decided who and what and all that kind of thing. And number two, here's Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and their, and their criminal buddies forging emails to make a candidate's child look bad hunter biden is the son of joe biden his brother and sister were killed and his mother were all killed in a car crash he's struggled with drug and alcohol problems has gone through rehab got himself straight and i mean even if these emails were true they they you know there's, there's apparently no they're there but i mean there's every evidence that they're forged they were on a laptop that some guy turned over to a laptop repair guy and he just accidentally discovered them and somehow he knew to contact Rudy Giuliani. And keep in mind, Giuliani spent the last year with a Russian intelligence officer who's been feeding him stuff. So the story was you know, actually banned from Twitter for a while, but now it's getting out there. And, but I think, I think most Americans are just going to look at this with disgust. You're going after the kid of the candidate? Really? I mean, I haven't heard Joe Biden talking about the Trump children. Well, not Tiffany and not Barron, but Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric all having to take a class in how not to rip people off when you run a nonprofit charity because they are convicted of fraud. They have to take a class. For example, I mean, you know, it's just a starting point. Or Jared Kushner, you know, getting Saudi Arabia to help him threaten Middle Eastern countries if they don't loan him a billion dollars. I mean, it's just it's just mind-boggling. I think most Americans are, and particularly Americans old enough to have children who are adults, who have struggled throughout their lives. Thank God, you know, our kids have made it through life pretty good. We have some very close friends who have a son who... Is repeatedly ending up in the hospital and in rehab facilities and and we just you know we can see all the pain that it's causing them and i just don't see how how uh, trump and giuliani think this is going to help them in any way at all you know there are groups that pass out surplus food I told the story a million times on the show about how when i was a little kid before my dad got a job in a tool and die shop and he was selling world book encyclopedias door-to-door and rex air vacuum cleaners That every week or three, we used to go to what we called the cheese shop, you know, the surplus food store in town. And it was, this is what it was. It was USDA surplus. Federal government was buying surplus milk and cheese from farmers in Michigan and putting it in these stores along with 25 pound bags of macaroni and stuff like that. So we've been doing this forever. That was literally 60 years ago. In fact, it was more than 60 years ago. Now... This USDA food, when you pick up your USDA food or when somebody delivers it to your home, as occasionally happens. This is Lisa Hamler-Fugit, the executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks, said, In my 30 years of doing this work, I've never seen something this egregious. What's she speaking of? She's speaking of a new letter that the U.S. Department of Agriculture is requiring be put in with boxes of food. Now, we got 30 million people on unemployment. There's probably 40 or 50 million people who are actually unemployed. And, you know, unemployment doesn't cover things like gig workers and, and whatnot, or people who have been on long enough that they've just rolled off. You know, in many states, unemployment benefits are severely limited, particularly the states run by Republicans. But this is a mind-boggling number of Americans. This letter says, as part of our response to coronavirus, I prioritized, I prioritized sending nutritious food from our farmers to families in need throughout America signed Donald J. Trump it makes you want to puke John in St. Mary's Idaho hey John what's on your mind
3: okay great show Tom okay my question is thank you you believe that the current economies in the world and the U.S. that there is a possibility of a worldwide depression thank you
4: Yes. Yeah, I absolutely do, John. And I, and I think that the countries that have been engaged in neoliberal economic policy for the last 40 years, specifically the United States and the United Kingdom, and to a lesser extent, some of the countries of Europe, France, for example, also Italy and Greece that have moved, been moving in a neoliberal direction, are at greatest risk because their safety net, their social safety net, is the most frayed and fragile. It's also going to challenge for Europe. It's going to challenge the euro. Already they're bending the rules about, you know, you can't run a deficit of more than 3% of GDP, etc. They're going to have to figure out a way around that. But uh, yes, I think that there's a very real possibility, although I don't think that it's necessarily going to be worldwide. What we're seeing right now is that China has fully bounced back. The Rembini. The yuan, the Chinese currency, was up, I believe it was 4% this morning. I think I was reading on the Financial Times. It's up substantially in any case. And why? Because China's fully back to business. They have basically stamped out the virus with the exception of the extreme northwestern region where they've got a border with Russia where it's coming across and the areas where they've got, you know, a million or two million Uyghurs in their prison camps. And there's You know even well god only knows what's going on there but but outside of those regions it looks like china has got this thing nailed down and the economy in new zealand is back to normal the economies in taiwan and south korea are back to normal so i think that it's going to be we're going to have a really tough time particularly in the united states and in the uk Uh, because we just have handled this so poorly. You know, the UK explicitly embraced a herd immunity strategy, at least for a few months. And then Boris Johnson got sick and came back and said, whoa, you don't want to do that. And now the Trump administration is openly embracing a herd immunity strategy, which is going to lead to a minimum of 2 million deaths. John, thank you for the call. When you just think about it, you know, if we have the case fatality rate for COVID in the United States is a little over 4%. I think it's 4.56%. And if you think that it takes 70% of the population to achieve herd immunity, well, let's say it just takes half. What if 50% of the population is herd immunity? So 50% of 340 million people, let's see, two goes into three one time, two goes into 14. that's, That's 170 million people. So you'd have to have 170 million people get COVID, in order to establish a 50% threshold for he- herd immunity. And most experts say 70%. So, But anyhow, we got uh, 100 and, what was I, 100? <laughs> let's say it's 100, and, let's just pull a number, right? 150 million people, that's close enough. Or Yeah, 150 million people. What's 4.5% of 100 million people? Well, 4% of 100 million people is 4 million people. And 4% of 50 million people is 2 million people. So that'd be 6 million people dead if the current case fatality rate is applied to half of America getting this. Now, yes, we have improved some of the ways that we respond to this, that over time will probably drive down our case fatality rate. But still, Trump is pursuing a strategy that is going to, that has the potential to kill 6 million Americans. And I just don't see how, how that works for us, I, you know, other than just plunging America into a crisis. But anyhow, scientists today, right now, are projecting 400,000 dead Americans by the end of this year from the coronavirus. And a new study was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association yesterday suggesting that as of August, several months ago, there were 75,000 people who died of coronavirus who were never uh, listed as having died of coronavirus. They had heart attacks, they had strokes, sudden death. And when you go back and you look at you know what happened, they almost certainly died of coronavirus. They just never got diagnosed. So you know, we're saying we've got 215,000 deaths. It appears we have well over 300,000 deaths in America. And meanwhile, we're discovering that back in February, the Trump administration gave a private briefing to hedge fund guys, among others, at the conservative Hoover Institution, telling them that the economy was in big trouble and get ready because of the virus. And as a result, a bunch of millionaires and billionaires made a huge killing while the American middle class, who got no warning at all, Trump was lying to us. We got wiped out. Uh, Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting today that 8 million people have slipped into poverty in the last seven months, and that uh, certainly understates the depth and breadth of the problem caused by the Trump administration's failure to stop the virus in the United States. It has been stopped in Taiwan, it has been stopped in New Zealand, it has been largely stopped in Australia, it's been stopped in South Korea, but here, no, 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 no. no. And in fact, Dr. Fauci is even saying now, because we've screwed this thing up so badly in the United States, because Trump has screwed it up so badly, we should just cancel Thanksgiving. And now the Trump administration is promoting herd immunity, and they've got this petition, this letter that they say is from 9,000 doctors around the world with a whole bunch of made-up names on it. I.M.P? Really? This is a name for a doctor? Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's insane. And, and this letter is openly calling for herd immunity. Yes, let's like, get 70% of Americans infected. Let's kill 6 million Americans. And then how long will that immunity last? We don't know. Might just be until the next season, just like flu and the common cold. You know, the Republicans have a long history of ignoring public health crises. They ignored the tobacco crisis for years and years. In 2000, Mike Pence even wrote an op-ed saying tobacco doesn't cause a cancer. They've ridiculed, denied, ignored that human activity is causing, uh, you know, burning fossil fuels is causing global warming. Uh, Even Judge Barrett is like, well, I don't know. Her father, by the way, has spent his, most of his lifetime as a lawyer for Shell Oil, which has a case before the Supreme Court involving global warming in a, in a month or two. I'm, I'm astonished nobody brought that up. They were so, you know, let's handle her with kid gloves. Let's not talk about this culprit she's in. Uh, it, it's just it's just mind-boggling. They've been gutting regulatory agencies. They're before the Supreme Court saying do away with pre-existing protections, uh, pre-existing condition protections. The Republican Party, let's call it what it is, it's a death cult.
5: This is the
4: Tom Hartman Program. Eight million people have slid into poverty in the United States since May because of the incompetence of the the Trump administration or the malice. We have a special video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how a fellow named Errol Graham is a 57-year-old African-English individual who starved to death recently in the United Kingdom. The neoliberal Thatcher policies are apparently echoing through the British system now in a rather substantial way, the same way that Reaganomics is echoing through the American system. And we've got tens of thousands of Americans who die every year because they lack health care, or they can't afford co and things. And we have literally millions of children in America who are malnourished or even go to bed hungry every night. It's pretty breathtaking stuff. And I think you'll find the rant particularly interesting or useful and hope you can share it with your friends so when you pick it up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Thanks again. Kevin in Watsonville, California. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Well, Tom, I'm really disgusted at the Republican Party that they claim to be, you know, uh,
3: the grand old party, but they just are buckling under to um, a dictator. And I'm afraid our democracy is ending right before our eyes and. You know, basically, we're we're going to return to a feudal system of the Middle Ages to where the lords and kings have everything. And then the rest of us are going to be just the serfs and the peons, too.
6: In the book that
4: I have coming out next spring called The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, there's an entire chapter toward the end of that book about what feudalism is and how it's being reinvented right now and the major instrument of neo-feudalism is debt and one of the cutting edges of that are these uh, payday lenders and things like that but debt is the main thing that is that is being used to lock in mostly poor people but also the, the lower middle class the bottom half of the working class in america and it's a terrible thing and kevin i think your analysis is right i do and thank you for calling and making it wayne in kingston new york hey wayne what's up
1: You know, I just wanted to point out, again, like everybody else, the the hypocrisy of the Republican Party. Trump is going for herd immunity, like you said. Uh, But they like to scream, all lives matter. And we all know it's just a nasty (laughs) retort to us singing Black Lives Matter. So if you're going for herd immunity, millions are going to die. What happened to all lives matter? And that's all I
7: got for you.
4: Well, there was somebody, I, I don't recall where I read it this morning, who was calling uh, the herd immunity strategy a, a, a reinvention of the eugenics strategy of the 1920s. Uh, the whole idea of eugenics was either sterilize or kill off the people who are, quote, genetically inferior, end quote, and which included people who are mentally retarded or, or uh, you know, and people of color. and And, you know, what's going to happen here with herd immunity is, you know, African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans are going to die in much larger numbers than white people, and elderly people are going to die. So, I, I think you could even call it eugenics, Wayne. I mean, that's how that's how vicious this whole thing is. It's just over the top. Wayne, thank you. Excellent point. Richard Wolf will be with You're us. You are listening in a... to the Tom Hartman Program. Excuse me. I should say, Professor Richard Wolf will be with us in a moment. Stick around. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, your it. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. So uh, a couple of days ago, Felix Salmon over at uh, Axios.com published this piece, America's True Unemployment Rate. And Felix says uh, if a person who is looking for a full-time job that pays a living wage but can't find one is the definition of unemployed, then 26% of Americans are unemployed. If you measure unemployment as anybody over 16 years old who isn't earning a living wage, we have 54.6% unemployment in the United States for black Americans. 59.2% of Americans are unemployed. The official unemployment rate is 3.6%. But what is going on here? This makes no sense at all. On the line with us is our old friend, Professor Richard Wolff. He's an economist, professor of economics, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He's the uh, founder of uh, DemocracyatWork.info and and his website, rdwolf 2 fscom You can tweet him at profwolf. And Prof. Wolff, Professor Wolf, welcome back. You know, I, I know that we've discussed unemployment before, but I'd like to do a deep dive here. What What's the history of this? How did we get to this point? And how is it possible that we have a, you know, these these low unemployment rates here in the United States?
6: Well, it's crystal clear to most of us watching that what began as a fairly technical debate among a few of the people mostly in and around the Labor Department, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, a debate about how best to measure unemployment, which is a difficult topic and there are legitimate differences in how to count it. That was quickly overtaken by political interests. Usually the government in power doing everything it can to lean on the statisticians to come up with the smallest possible number and those out of power hoping to get in pushing for the reverse that is to count all the people that you could legitimately claim and what you see in that axios article is what the result is namely depending on how you choose to count what you think is important uh you come up with extraordinarily different numbers, as little as, you know, single-digit unemployment, which is what the Trump administration, for example, now uses, with an awful lot of media following suit, or any one of half a dozen alternative measures. It has even gotten to the point uh, where it's so acrimonious that the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues a whole raft of unemployment numbers, not just one there's unemployment, U1, it's called U2, U5, U6, there's a whole bunch of them, and they vary quite significantly because their definitions are, in fact, different. Bottom line, if you use the Axios article, and it's a very good article, by the way, if you use it, you will get a real grasp on what should be clear to Americans, which is if by unemployment you mean people who are unable to get a decent full time job at something more than i don 't know twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year to live on, if that 's your measure of who 's unemployed, then half of Americans looking for work in fact can 't get that kind of job and if you If you add to that the people that aren 't looking anymore. Well, you know, you're talking about an economic system that has failed. The job of an economic system is to give people work at decent income, just like it's the job of an economic system to be prepared for a virus that we know is coming at any time. And we live in a system that is failing on both counts.
4: So in the 1930s, the unemployment rate was um, somewhere between 25 and 35 percent at various points, as I recall. How differently was that measured then versus now? And how close, in your mind, are we to the actual unemployment rates we saw in the 1930s? I mean, we've got 8 million people. The New York Times had a piece this morning. Uh, 8 million people have slid into poverty just since May in America. Um, that's pretty, pretty scary. I mean, it's, it, it, we've got a huge eviction crisis looming on the horizon. It seems to me like we're in Great Depression territory, but that's certainly not the message that the Republicans, the Trump administration, and sadly, the media are putting out.
6: Yes, I agree with you. I'm, I'm really upset by it because I deal with it every day with these questions. Uh, let's start quickly. The official rate in the, in the depth of the Depression, so that would be 1933, the peak of unemployment was listed and is usually carried in history books as twenty five percent so roughly one in four americans in the labor force at that time were unemployed which means that literally every family in the united states had somebody father mother cousin uncle somebody unemployed often more than one which meant that those who were still employed had to share their income and their livelihood expenses with those who weren't Remember, at this time, we didn't have unemployment insurance uh, or Social Security. The difficulty for the American people, unspeakable if we look back. I would argue that today we have levels of unemployment that are at least as bad as the Great Depression. And I say that only because so many other economic indicators indicate that we are at or beyond the level uh, of, of crash that we had in the 1930s therefore I would tilt on that on those grounds towards the higher end uh, of what's happening and if you look at who's caught in it black and brown people who are now a significantly larger part of our population than they were in the nineteen thirties are suffering the disproportionate impact of all of this if you add that we have interrupted schooling in a way we did not in the nineteen thirties well then the deep scars of this collapse and the implications of the failure to be prepared to be prepared for the virus or to contain it are going to be hurting us as a people and a nation for, for a long time, just as the Great Depression shaped most of the rest of the 20th century's economics and politics. I think what we're going through now will do the same.
4: In The Washington Post today, Greg Sargent, I believe it was, although I may have that wrong, it was one of the regular columnists was writing how Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate have largely given up on any idea of governing uh, next year. That, you know, they can see the handwriting on the wall. They think the Republicans are going to lose the Senate. They've already lost the House and they're definitely going to lose the White House. And therefore, what they are doing is busily running around Washington D.C. metaphorically speaking and uh, putting landmines everywhere they can so that when the Biden administration excuse me, comes in on January 20th, they will be presented with horrible, absolutely horrible economic circumstances, and they will be restrained in their ability to do anything about it. They're already starting to scream about budget deficits, something that Republicans always talk about when Democrats come into office. How much damage can they do, and how long might it take to recover from that kind of damage?
6: very difficult good question but very difficult to answer and that and the, and the reason is has to be hammered home here the united states is not the dominant player in the world today the way it has been for most of the last 75 years and that reality has not yet sunk in the desperate effort of the, of the trump and republican administrations to shift from a globalization approach to a nationalism uh... that's the desperate effort of people you know doing that famous thing of closing the barn door after all the animals have gotten out it's not working it hasn't worked we haven't revived manufacturing we haven't changed our deficits with international trade or even with china after all of the political theater I think what you're seeing is hinted to us by what the Republicans said when Obama won in 2008, namely, they're going to do everything they can to make his uh, presidency a failure in order to then run on the grounds that he failed and get themselves into office, which is pretty much what they did or tried to do, and I think they're just following that playbook. Having said that, Mr. Biden and Kamala Harris are going to have Quite the difficulty whatever amount of blame you want to put on the republicans and the and trump and they deserve everything you put on them the reality is our problems are into a system that is going to be a very big problem for a new administration no matter how successful their landmines
4: yeah and uh, you know the sabotage efforts are apparently just going into high gear and they'll redouble during the lame duck apparently Professor Richard Wolf, his latest book, The Sickness is the System, democracyatwork.info. Professor Wolf, thanks for dropping by.
6: My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Tom Hartman.
4: Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
7: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle.
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: For the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword for this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear. That he's talking about the 1930s right? when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic. At lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, The problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away, and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run. And headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real live cowboy? I wondered, what would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers across the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies. Because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon but were under the hood of a nineteen twenty eight DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it, and lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, said our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because, like the other clouds moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. and It was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend. and There, right in front of us, was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. We book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's Autobiography. The foreword by Tom Hartman. Bill in Casadero, California. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today?
3: Hey, Tom, just calling you some ideas about COVID that I've seen in the media. And I'm amazed that the government or Biden or somebody hasn't picked up on this and tried to implement or at least uh, investigate. And that is one, is that dogs can be trained to sniff out the COVID-19 virus about a 94%. Yeah, the Dutch are doing this. Accuracy rate. And I was hoping that... Uh, and also it can be detected in sewage. And I thought if they combine the two mm-hmm. ideas together, they could locate areas where there are infections, use the dogs to sniff out households that are infected and put them into isolation. And well, here's, the, here's and why that's
4: not being discussed in the United States. That would work yeah, right, if it, you it had most written, of the population not having COVID-19 and the occasional you know, pocket popping up like they have in Holland right now. And that's where they're doing this. But here, 10% of the U.S. population has been exposed to this disease now because of the incompetence of the Trump administration. Yes, you can test sewage and see where these things are exploited, but there's no response to it.
3: Yeah, I know. I've written, I've contacted so many health officials, people that are on TV and such, and they say interesting, and I hear nothing back.
4: Yeah, because there's, if we're able to find people who are infected, well, in Wisconsin right now, they've got a case, what's the word for, when... The percentage of people who show up to be tested, you know, you want to keep, uh, who test positive, you want to keep that percentage, you know, the positivity ratio or rate, I guess it's called. Uh, You want to keep that below 5%. That means that you're testing enough people that you're actually starting to catch the virus. It's over 20% in Wisconsin right now. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's other data that can be pulled in, but, you know, uh, what good is it going to do? Robert in Forest Grove, Oregon. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind?
0: Hi, Tom. Uh, The question is... Why do Republicans lack empathy? Why are they so cold-blooded and lack of conscience? I think the answer is in a wonderful article by Chauncey DeVega in Salon. It's called, Republican Party is Sociopathic. And it's what's so beautiful about the article is that it uses the criteria from the psychiatric manual to define the antisocial personality. And these are antisocial personalities—a person without a conscience, without empathy, who's cold-blooded—and that that encompasses most of the national Republican Party and the state Republican Party. And that explains why they're enabling Trump because they they don't have a conscience.
4: So, I'm agreeing so, with you, Robert. Chauncey De Vega is one of the smartest people I know, and one of the most brilliant writers. Chauncey is. I'm just constantly amazed when I read Chauncey's work, and he's been on this program a number of times. I I hold him in very, very high regard. I would say that the flow, the directional flow of cause and effect is a little different from, I haven't read the article, but from what the headline of the article would imply. I would submit to you that the Republican Party, when they sold out to giant corporations, became essentially the vehicle, the most comfortable vehicle for people who are already sociopaths we know that somewhere between one and five percent of all the people in in the world are sociopaths depending on how tightly you define sociopath and those people are going to look for a political party they're going to gravitate and many of them don't even realize they're sociopaths they just think everybody's like them and they're going to gravitate toward a particular uh, political party and the republican party has been set up in such a way That it's basically, this is the place where you go if you're a sociopath, or if you're an authoritarian, which is another category, although there's often some overlap. And the Republican Party has become the home of sociopaths and Republicans because it has, it is organized, as Chauncey points out, in a sociopathic way. Lori in Portland. Hey, Lori, what's up?
0: Hi there. I wanted to not forget about the separation of the migrant kids, and I wanted to say that There could be a study on the effects just by studying mothers who lost kids to adoption. And I'm one of those mothers. And something I wanted to mention is that I belong to adoption groups for many, many years, had an eating disorder from the minute I lost my child to the minute I reunited with him. And there's a whole lot of mothers adoption like anything else in America. There's a lot of money to be made through lawyer's fees and that kind of thing. And it has its place, and it can be a good thing, but there are also a dark side to it. And what I've been reading and finding out lately is that Betsy DeVos has been a part, somehow she's got her hands in the separation of those kids, not specifically separating them. But the agency, Bethany Agency, is taking those kids, and they're saying that they're not adopting them out, but they're, fostering them but she has relatives involved in Bethany Services which is the uh, the group that's that's taking them and supposedly in
4: Michigan, just yeah.
0: fostering them but the thing about it is when I belonged to these groups for years we were a lot of us were search angels reuniting people and the one company that came up over and over and over again when we heard Bethany services we were like oh here we go they were the most non-cooperative they didn't want to help reunite they didn't want to give any information it was completely Hmm. the most difficult one that we ever dealt with and the thought of them trying to pass this no abortion. There's a lot of young women that just because they're young and single, which isn't as bad today now as it was in my day, but they pressure them. They start calling them birth mothers instead of mothers to get them to disconnect from being a mother so that they'll pay for them to stay in apartments. And then if the woman changes her mind, they'll say things like, well, you know, you'll have to pay for the apartment or the car rental. And so I just see the non-abortion, I see that Christian agency really pushing more young women. And I think that mothers could be... A study for what happens because when you talk to adopted people and mothers, the panic attacks, the psychological issues, the eating disorders, the right. suicide attempts.
4: I absolutely get it. And thank you. I can't speak to that. I've read, you know, I did read an article about it last year about Betsy DeVos being involved with one of these agencies, and that's very grim. And you make a strong argument, at the very least, for open adoptions. George in Seattle. Hey, George, what's up?
3: I'm wondering how to explain to folks about this current recession and the fact that the stock market still looks good. I Some understanding that dollars won't be going around in the local economy because nobody will have dollars to spend,
4: and that will hurt small business. But right. I don't know if there's a concise way. What has happened, George, is that 40 years of Reaganomics have created, they're, they're referring to this now as a K-shaped recovery, but basically it's been a K-shaped economy all along, which is one leg of the K, the, the, the downward leg, that's the trajectory that's being followed by the bottom 95% of Americans, or 90% of Americans, you know, working class people and below. Life is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then for the top 10%, the managerial class, the white-collar worker, who can work from home, tech workers, the senior executives, the billionaires, the very wealthy people, the multimillionaires, for them, they're just getting literally richer every single day. And the Fed has been feeding that. You know, you've got the Fed has manufactured out of thin air $7 trillion and used it to buy corporate bonds and corporate stock. And the only companies as a result of this that the Fed is supporting are publicly traded companies, companies whose stock you can actually buy in the stock market. But what's real obvious to me is that they're doing this to try to keep the stock market up because so many Americans think the stock market is the indicator of how the economy is doing so that Trump can get reelected. And there is no doubt in my mind that the day after the election, particularly if Trump loses, but even if he wins the day after the election, they're going to pull out the supports. This is the same thing George W. Bush tried to do in 2008. In the spring of 2008, the wheels started coming off the economy. We started realizing what was going on. Some of the credit markets started seizing up. The whole uh, subprime mortgage thing was starting to come unraveled. The entire Republican Party, they were throwing everything they could at this, trying to forestall that until the day after the election so that they could say, oh, Barack Obama just got elected president. You know, or even if it was John McCain, I don't think George W. Bush gave a damn. He didn't like John McCain anyway. but, But basically it was like, it wasn't my fault. That's what George W. Bush was trying to do. And he couldn't pull it off. You know, he mistimed it by about six months. And it hit, and it hit hard, and it hit bad. And I think that there's a very real chance. We've we've got about, you know, what, seven weeks, eight weeks, something like that. Is the bottom going to fall out between now and then, or is the bottom going to fall out right after the election? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But, you know, your observation is spot on. This is not an economy that would support a strong stock market. The Fed is supporting the strong stock market, pure and simple. It's an illusion, you know. And the great and terrible Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain, that's Jerome Powell, who used to be one of the directors of you know the, the Carlisle Group, this major defense uh, industry fund. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
7: Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media.
5: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
4: So what if Donald Trump loses the election and uh, decides that he's going to punish America for not being sufficiently loyal to him, for not loving him, for not re-electing him? And so he has, you know, uh, Jerome Powell, his hand-picked successor to the, you know, as the chair of the Fed, who has created $7 trillion out of thin air and used much of it to buy stocks and bonds to prop up the bond market. That's one-third of the entire nation's entire annual gross domestic product. What if he orders Powell to stop supporting the stock and bond markets between, you know, November 3rd and January 20th? The bottom would fall out of the market. The bottom would fall out of the housing market as well, particularly if inflation started going up, which Powell has already indicated he's going to let happen. And the country would be thrown into something worse than the Republican Great Depression of the 1930s. Is it possible? Well, we've got a video talking about that over at TomHartman.com. Nathan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Nathan, what's on your mind?
6: You asked a very interesting question that's been on my mind for a long time. What replaces the Republican Party? And the Republican Party feels to me like a 40-year accident that shouldn't have happened. What replaces it is the two factions of the Democratic Party, the Biden side and the Bernie side, basically. That becomes the new two-party system.
4: That would be the best outcome, Nathan. That would be the absolute best outcome if, if, the, if the Republicans basically turned themselves into corporate Democrats, uh, you know, in other words, people who, yes, they care about America. Yes, they want things to work, but they are willing to defer to the big corporate interests. You know, Joe Lieberman blowing up the public option because the insurance companies gave him $1.08 million, you know, that kind of stuff. At at least that's not killing 200,000 Americans and selling out our national interest to foreign hostile powers. And and that would also give the Democratic Party a a chance to clean up their act and go back to their FDR LBJ roots, you know, and and say, you know, we're going to go back to promoting stuff like the New Deal and the Great Society, That would be a very good outcome. The tragedy is that the Republican—well, maybe it's not a tragedy. Maybe whatever it is, that the Republican brand has been so tarnished and so destroyed. I think it's going to take, you know, I was going to say a generation, probably at least a decade of shaking out these hardcore right-wing Republicans, you know, the Lindsey Grahams and Tom Cottons of the world, shaking—and Tom Tillis's and whatnot— and, uh, you know, and Tom Tillis was in big trouble. Now his Democratic challenger has a mini scandal. He, he tweeted something about, hey, I'd like to kiss you to one of, you know, to somebody who wasn't his wife. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, let's freak out. But he's saying, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to back off. I'm going to continue to take this guy on. Yeah, that was a mistake. It was a while ago, but so what? And, and I think that that, you know, which has been the Republican position of sex scandals forever and should be, f- yeah. you know, for Democrats right now, I mean, given where we are in the race. But yeah, I think you're right, Nathan, uh, or at least I think you're on to something, and I think it's an important something. Nathan, thank you for the call. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, what's up?
1: First, I just want to say I wish Joe Biden would equate getting rid of uh, covering pre-existing conditions with wage suppression. People can't move on to different jobs if they're afraid, if they can't change insurance companies because pre-existing conditions aren't covered. So I want to throw that out there. Secondly, Republicans have had a couple of different chances where they had the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court and the White House to turn over Roe v. Wade, and they never did it. It's a wedge issue. They're never going to do it. I mean, when Bush was in office, remember, there was a few years there where he had all branches of government were Republicans. They didn't do anything. They talked about snowflake babies.
4: They're well, there is things one things theory, the Sh- Charisse, that. There is one theory that suggests that the Republicans don't want to overturn Roe because once they do, they no longer have it as an issue and then the backlash will begin seriously because wealthy women particularly wealthy white women will still be able to get abortions they could before we you know back before Roe v Wade there was this thing called DNCs that there just seemed to be a lot of them going on you know where you know women were going to the hospital for one day to have this it uh, turned out it was an abortion more often than not but poor women and women of color will not have access to that and they are going to start dying and and I think that you know I think there will be a blowback what do you think
1: Yeah, well, I I don't know. I just think they were not going to give that up as a wedge issue any more than guns and gays and, you know, their little pet projects. I've been having this argument with my family for years. That
4: But there's several cases. Yeah, no, I get it, but there's, I believe, three cases heading toward the Supreme Court. One of them already there, or maybe they're awaiting cert, I'm not sure, but one case in particular that could literally overturn Roe v. Wade and take us right back to every state decides. And then, you know, some states would say, okay, it's fine. Other states would say no, you know, barring federal legislation, which I doubt would pass right now. But I think that that has a, actually a high probability of happening, Sharice.
1: Oh, well, if they, I, if they put hope- Amy
4: Coney Bryant on the court.
1: Yeah, it's terrifying. All of it is terrifying. But Herbaric. I wish Joe would get on that wage suppression thing. That's, I think, equating that with getting rid of the coverage for pre-existing conditions I don't think anybody's looking at it from that vantage point, And I think it's
4: valid. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, people aren't you. just afraid to change jobs. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cherise. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear from you. People aren't just afraid to change jobs because they're afraid that they, you know, that they will lose their health insurance or that their coverage for pre-existing conditions won't go with them. I'm talking about, you know, like before the Affordable Care Act. They're afraid to start their own businesses. I mean, you know, Louise and I started uh, seven businesses, you know, uh, three or four of them pretty successful businesses in our, in our uh, you know, 50 years together. And back then, you know, back in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, health insurance was not that expensive. You could get it, generally speaking. Now it is. I mean, now these companies have been unleashed And this massive monopolization, since Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act in 1982, this massive monopolization now, we're down to basically five or six companies that control virtually the entire insurance market. They're acting as a cartel, they're acting as a monopoly. And, you know, give them an inch and they will take a mile. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from Arundhati Roy's brilliant book, Capitalism, A Ghost Story. This is from the afterword, the very end of the book. Yesterday morning, the police cleared Zuccotti Park, but today the people are back. The police should know that this protest is not a battle for territory. We're not fighting for the right to occupy a park here or there. We're fighting for justice. Justice is not just for the people of the United States, but for everybody. What you've achieved since September 17th, when the Occupy movement began in the United States, is to introduce a new imagination, a new political language, into the heart of the empire. You've reintroduced the right to dream into a system that tried to turn everybody into zombies, mesmerized into equating mindless consumerism with happiness and fulfillment. As a writer, let me tell you, this is an immense achievement. I cannot thank you enough. We are talking about justice. Today as we speak, the Army of the United States is waging a war of occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan. U.S. drones are killing civilians in Pakistan and beyond. Tens of thousands of U.S. troops and death squads are moving into Africa. If spending trillions of dollars of your money to administer occupations in Iraq and Afghanistan is not enough, a war against Iran is being talked up. Ever since the Great Depression, the manufacture of weapons and the export of war have been key ways ...in which the United States has stimulated its economy. Under President Obama, the United States made a $60 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia. It hopes to sell thousands of bunker busters to the United Arab Emirates. It has sold $5 billion worth of military aircraft to my country, India... ...my country which has more poor people than all the poorest countries of Africa put together. All these wars, from the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to Vietnam, Korea, Latin America... ...have claimed millions of lives... All of them fought to secure the, quote, American way of life, end quote. Today we know that the American way of life, the model that the rest of the world is meant to aspire toward, has resulted in 400 people owning the wealth of half the population of the United States. It has meant thousands of people being turned out of their homes and jobs while the U.S. government bailed out banks and corporations. American International Group alone was given $182 billion in the bailout. The Indian government worships U.S. economic policy. As a result of 20 years of the free market economy, today 100 of uh, India's richest people own assets equal to one-fourth of the country's GDP, while more than 80% of Indian people live on less than 50 cents a day. 250,000 farmers driven into a spiral of death have committed suicide. We call this progress and now think of ourselves as a superpower. Like you, we are well qualified. We have nuclear bombs and obscene inequality. The good news is that people have had enough and are just not going to take it anymore. Uh, The Occupy movement has joined thousands of other resistance movements all over the world, in which the poorest of people are standing up and stopping the richest corporations in their tracks. Few of us dreamed that we would see it, the people of the United States on our side, trying to do this in the heart of empire. I don't know how to communicate the enormity of what this means. The 1% say we don't have demands. They don't know, perhaps, that our anger alone would be enough to destroy them. But there are some things, a few pre-revolutionary thoughts I had, for us to think about together. We want to put a lid on this system that manufactures inequality. We want to put a cap on the unfettered accumulation of wealth and property by individuals as well as corporations. As capitalists and lidites, we demand, one, an end to cross-ownership in business. For example, weapons manufacturers cannot own TV stations. Mining corporations cannot run newspapers. Business houses cannot fund universities. Drug companies cannot control public health funds. Two, natural resources and essential infrastructure water supply, electricity, health, and education cannot be privatized. Three, everybody must have a right to shelter, education, and health care. Four, the children of the rich cannot inherit their parents' wealth. This struggle has reawakened our imagination. Somewhere along the line capitalism reduced the idea of justice to mean just human rights and the idea of dreaming of equality became blasphemous we're not fighting to tinker with reforming a system that needs to be replaced as a capist and a lidite i salute your struggle salam and Zimbabwe dud that's the end of the book this is from the very opening of it chapter 1 is it a house or a home A temple to the new India, or a warehouse for its ghosts? Ever since Antilla arrived in Altamont Road in Mumbai, exuding mystery and a quiet menace, things have not been the same. Here we are, the friend who took me there said. Pay your respects to our new ruler. Antilla belongs to India's richest man, Mukesh Ambani. I'd read about this most expensive dwelling ever built. The 27 floors, three hillipads, nine lifts, hanging gardens, ballrooms, weather rooms, gymnasiums, Six floors of parking and 600 servants. Nothing had prepared me for the vertical lawn. A soaring 27-story high wall of grass attached to a vast metal grid. The grass was dry in patches. Bits have fallen off in neat rectangles. Clearly, trickle-down hadn't worked. But gush-up certainly has. That's why in a nation of 1.2 billion, India's 100 richest people own assets equivalent to one-fourth of the GDP. And then Arundhati Roy goes on from there talking about Oh, India is kind of an example of capitalism run amok. Capitalism a ghost story. Mark in Long Beach, California.
6: Supposing the ACA is struck down. And here's the scenario. Biden wins, got a Democratic House of Representatives, and you got a Democratic-controlled Senate. Doesn't that mean that even if it's passed, it will be struck down again? and then the second question is real quick could you just explain briefly what is the public option and how it works and thank you for taking those two questions
4: sure mark the public option is every person has the ability to buy medicare i pay for my medicare every month it's a couple hundred bucks a month so you know medicare is not free so you know, I could choose a policy if I was under sixty-five. I could choose a po- and the public option was in place. I could choose a policy from United Healthcare. I could choose Medicare, and that's the public option. Uh, number one, number two. I think that your analysis is probably spot on. In all probability, the Supreme Court will strike down Obamacare, and that will open up an opportunity for a Democratic administration with a Democratic House and Senate, hopefully. Um, to pass something that's a whole lot better than Obamacare, to pass like Medicare for All or something like that. So let's hope. <laughs> we'll see. Bob. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Albert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strass. Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show, thank you and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.